The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James. Welcome to the show today, which is brought to you by The Athletic UK. And it is the regular Thursday club with me today. Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. And Fulham's writer for The Athletic, Peter Rutzler. Hey, everyone. How are we doing? Yeah, very good. Thank you. An exciting podcast today. We're going to be doing the final word on Sunday's epic win up at Anfield. Preview Saturday's yeah easyish game against Manchester City at the Cottage, and in part two we're going to be talking all things stats. Fulhamish's resident stats guru George Singer is going to be joining us. Um, we're going to be doing a deep dive into Peter's article, which he did with Tom Warville, uh, which you can read now on The Athletic. And you can subscribe to The Athletic right now for a special price of $3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off a full price subscription. Great analysis, in-depth features from the best football writers around, including our own Peter Rutzler, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. And Peter, um, you've been a busy man this week on, on The Athletic, obviously reacting to that Liverpool game and and doing this stats piece which we will get to a little bit more in depth later on in the podcast yeah busy week um quite nice to do a piece on um Fulham's sort of style and how it sort of changed over the season I did one sort of earlier on and and sort of questioned whether you know the the possession-based approach that we we saw last year uh could really work in in the Premier League and uh it's certainly evolved since then there's um Fulham yeah. very much have more to their bow than than they did then and, and, and it's been the backbone to recent improvements. So yeah, nice to get stuck into that. Well, if you want to subscribe to The Athletic, you can go to theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod to take advantage of that special 40% discount I talked about. That's theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod. Well, let's do the final word from Sunday's win over Liverpool. And, and Jack, I was saying to Peter before the podcast that I feel like I've been walking on a cloud this week when it comes to Fulham and football. Sunday was just a really magic day, I feel like, to be a Fulham fan. Yes, against a Liverpool team that isn't what it was, but still it feels like a real landmark moment for Fulham, not just in this season, but in all time, really. It feels like we've been out of the running in the Premier League for best part of a decade. I can't remember a result like that, maybe since the Roy Hodgson days. And even then we didn't tend to go to big six sides and win like that. It it was special on, on Sunday. And I think Fulham fans can rightly be, be happy with what was achieved. Yeah. I think it might be the moment where Fulham go from being like, Oh, we can stay up to if we don't stay up after this, we'll actually be a bit disappointed. Like yeah. that, that's the, I think it's a turning point in the, in the kind of expectations for the season. And you get a win like that, you go to the champions, you beat them on their own patch. Yes. As you say, a weak in Liverpool side, not the, not the side that, that perhaps won the league last year, one with the were changed, but still a Liverpool side on their own turf uh, and win that game. And I think at that point you look at this and go, right. Now, if Fulham don't stay up, there's going to be an immense amount of disappointment around the club. And and that's testament to Scott Parker and the work he's done uh, and all of the things around the club that have come in, the the players that have been brought in, the the way that they've been adapted to the system, the fact that Scott has them fighting for each other and, and looking like they're fighting for their lives. And, and that all rolled into one, you know, added to this kind of feel-good factor around everything right now at Fulham, I think has, has changed us from a side who we were like, oh, 17th on goal difference would be a miracle. It would be every... And, and look, don't get me wrong, 17th on goal difference would still be absolutely grand. We'd be more than happy with that. Yeah. It's, but it's more kind of like, it's not... It wouldn't be a miracle anymore. It's now like, that is the target, the aim, and we are pretty dead set on getting there. And I think that that's it. It's no longer this kind of dream-like state when you're like, oh, Fulham are, uh, are, are playing well, they're getting the results sometimes, they're grinding out games, we're in we're in games. But I think that's the kind of result that changes it from, okay, we might be able to do this to, okay, we can do this. 
Uh, Peter, I loved the first line, first two lines of your article, which you wrote on Monday after the win at Anfield. And it was, never mind Liverpool's troubles. It is one thing to smell blood and another thing to draw it. And I think that was so perfectly put for me because, yes, we were all going into that game thinking there was a chance. And there was a big chance. Don't get me wrong. There was probably never going to be a better chance to go to Anfield and get three points. However... It's not just as simple as going there and winning. And this is still a team that had Allison, Salah, Robertson, uh, Mane coming off the bench, Diogo Jota. It was still a talented side and the job had to be done. Yeah, I think that's what impressed me the most was the how Fulham sort of played on that. You know, from, from the moment you saw the, the starting lineup, you're like, right, you know, Fulham aren't going to turn up and then hope they might grab a win like everyone else did. They're going there to get it. Uh, and they did, and it was you know the first half was very very impressive. They made made life very uncomfortable for for Liverpool. You know that back line. I mean, it's not a very familiar one. I think their shirt numbers added up to one hundred ninety five. I think I worked out. Um, <laughs> Good. That, that, that's the kind of journalism I'm really after from you, yeah. honest, Peter. You know, I, I go go to all levels for. for Forget you guys. the forty percent off. I'd pay full price for that kind of analysis. <laughs> Uh, that's an exclusive one for you guys you know me doing the maths um <laughs> but, but yeah like I think that just kind of speaks to how unsettled Liverpool were but you you have to take it to them you have to make it difficult now you look at the run of fixtures they had at home I think it was five they'd lost five in a row before that um and yeah that that sort of indicates okay they're in a rut maybe they're gonna struggle but these things have to turn at some point it has to be a reaction um and Scott Parker's words were quite interesting beforehand as well because he, he was very much cautioning about you know it's a wounded animal we know their quality but there was also a real sort of yeah we've got a chance here we're not gonna go into this game wary completely about what Liverpool can do on their day we, you know we, we sense it we, we know we can go and do it and coming in off the back of the performances beforehand having gone to a place like Everton um and, and pulling off a 2-0 win you know, another historic victory it gives you that sort of confidence and now that they've gone to Liverpool and done it too it, it just it just adds to it and I completely agree with what, what Jack says in terms of what that means for how Fulham are perceived externally um, it, it really does change everything and um, there would be such disappointment now considering how well the team are playing and um, and now and this is this is the key thing and that's sort of where I rounded off the, the thinking from Sunday was what's what's to come now because this is great. It's good to hit a run of form now. It's good to get back in the mix, but they're still in the relegation zone and it's about refocusing. And I think the one thing that Scott Parker has done very, very well this season has been managing expectations and managing the thought process within the team and at the club. You know, straight away, the mention of the last 10 games is right. You know, we need to keep our eye on the ball here. We know what the focus is. We have to keep doing what we're doing. We can't get too far ahead. Um, and that's where there's a little confidence I feel from a Fulham side that you know then that sense of oh is there going to be complacency I just can't see Scott Parker allowing for that based on what we've seen already this season I mean Jack Brighton went on a run of form in January that made us really worry didn't they they, they beat Spurs at the Amex and then went away to Liverpool and won 1-0 and we thought, okay, well, that's Brighton safe. And and since then, they've gone on a horrendous run. You know, they had that defeat at, at the Hawthorns and they just can't score goals for, for love nor money. They obviously lost to Palace. They've lost to Leicester. Uh, and Fulham are a different side to Brighton and, and their problems are well documented. But we need to be wary now that we are still in a very, very precarious position. We're nowhere near safe and we can't afford to go on a run like Brighton did because whilst Brighton still might get out of it, I don't think Fulham will. No, I, I think, look, we, the thing is that if you do that in January, right, and, and as Brighton did, we've still got 10 games of the season left and there are 30 points on the table. Now, do I think that, that Fulham or Brighton are going to be picking up 30 points in their last 10 games? No, of course I don't. But... I do think that if you if you go on a bad 10-game run around Christmas, you know, December, January, there is an opportunity at the end of the season to claw that back. And we've seen that happen in in, in years before. And I think the, the one that comes to mind is the year that Fulham went down, Sunderland, with the, the, clean, the, the side that climbed out from below them and, and really kind of nailed that yeah. coffin shut. And the Sunderland run that year was well documented. They were really, really bad at the start of the season. And as they got towards the last 10 games, they started to pick up steam and they got through it. And 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 that was what actually shut the door on Fulham in, in, in terms of that relegation season. And now it feels like Fulham are in the position 
that Sunderland were in, right? They were, it was a bad start. It slowly got better. And right now, as we go into these last 10, it feels that Fulham are picking up ahead of steam. That said, if that falls apart and that momentum loses, it's now quite hard to get that momentum back. Now, Fulham play City, obviously, this weekend. And I don't think even the most optimistic Fulham fan isn't going, yeah, we're going to go and batter City. Um Although their European exploits midweek and the fact that they have been a little bit nervy and were a little bit nervy at points last night um, until they finally sort of just banged the door shut. <laughs> until and, they scored five. Yeah, yeah, but that's what City <laughs> that's what City are like, isn't it? You're like, you'll yeah. see, you know, it gets to the end of a game and they'll be really, it was like the Liverpool game, wasn't it? Where it was quite tight and a little bit nervy and everyone was like, oh, okay, fine. And then they scored three goals in the last 20 minutes and everyone was like, right, well, that's that then. And that looks like a comprehensive jobbing. And same can be said for Southampton last night. The games against City are not games where you play 80 minutes well and win the game. They're games where if you do not concentrate for every single one of the 90 minutes plus any additions, then you're going to be punished. So, you know, this is a this is a game where Fulham have to keep it tight, I think, keep it shut and looking you know, in a sense, like this is, you know, a, a really important thing to not lose momentum. And I'm not saying that we need to go and win the game to keep that momentum up. But I do think that we need to put in another impressive performance in order that we can come off the back of that and go, right, that's out of the way now. How do we kick onwards? Because that's going to be so important with what will then be nine games left. Well, yeah. Are you, and Nathan put it in the Fulhamish WhatsApp group, I think, over the weekend. And he says, do you know what? Maybe City are the perfect opponents after the high of Liverpool, Peter. Because you remember earlier in the season and we had that draw against Liverpool, which at the time almost felt like a win because it was such an impressive performance. And we know we conceded late on and we were disappointed. But I think the, the shock of how Fulham played in that match felt like Fulham had, had genuinely got a victory. And then we went into the next game against Brighton, a game which really... Fulham needed to win at home and it was so flat. It was uh, after the Lord Mayor's show. But Fulham against City have no expectations and I'm actually in agreement with Nathan. I'm quite pleased that this isn't a crucial game against a Burnley, a Brighton, a West Brom, a Sheffield United where we have to win because the pressure is slightly off on, on Saturday, isn't it? It naturally is. No one is expecting Fulham to win. Yeah, I think that's a really good reflection, actually, um, because of what we've seen already this season, as you said, the, the Brighton game and also that Burnley game that followed Everton. It's hard to sustain um, that momentum uh, after getting to such a high against such a difficult opponent to then get yourself going. It's one of the, the biggest challenges psychologically. Um, also added into that is the fact that there's no midweek game as well. So that that's also a bonus. Um and I think, yeah, it just, it just allows the team to, to refocus. I think it would have been, I think the ideal scenario is to have sort of a, uh, maybe a Villa or, or an Arsenal coming up next, someone who is perhaps a little more beatable than, than Manchester City, um, just to really lift the team even further with, in terms of confidence. Um, you know, City are such a, an impressive team at the moment, but I do, I do actually agree with Jack a little bit. Uh, I don't know, we'll probably talk about City a little bit more, but, you know, the way they played against Southampton uh, on Wednesday night, and then also the way they played against Wolves, where, you know, they were okay, but, you know, Wolves pegged them back and it was only late on did they, they sort of run away with it as, as Wolves sort of collapsed after, you know, falling behind. Um, there's a chance there. And, you know, when you think back to the way Fulham played at the Etihad, you know, they were undone in those, in those opening 15 minutes, which was one of those early season problems where Fulham would sort of lose their footing in the early stages of the first or second half. Uh, but for the rest of the game, they, they really took the game to City. Um, City have a lot of um, irons in the fire at the moment. And maintaining that focus um, when you're coming up against a team who are struggling, where you're expected to win, maybe they could take their eye off the ball a little bit. So, for, But from a Fulham perspective, it's about maintaining performance levels. That's been the key thing throughout the season. You know, um, They have been competitive in, in almost every game they've played this season. Uh, since the start, uh, the, the disappointing start. And that's what gives you an underlying confidence. That's the reason why Fulham's heads didn't drop, why they, there was no sort of infighting or, you know, that there was no sort of blame, I guess, when, when the goals weren't going in. Because really, fundamentally, you, you sort of knew that Fulham were doing okay. They, they weren't doing terribly. Um, the performance level was enough. And if they can just sustain that for the, for the remaining 10 games of the season, then they maintain that chance of, of staying up. So Jack, how do you beat or get a result against Manchester City? They obviously won 21 games 
in a row before they lost against United at the weekend. It was 28 games unbeaten um, before that. So to say they've been on a good run um, is an understatement, really. I, I, I heard um, Jonathan Wilson on Guardian Football Weekly earlier in the week saying that potentially it was one of the worst 21 match winning runs that he's ever seen, which <laughs> I thought was <laughs> quite a nice seems, line. Because- seems harsh. Well, I think he was comparing it to other 21 game winning runs. There aren't a lot to compare them to because they don't happen very much. I think he was trying to point out that maybe the caliber of the opposition that City often had to face um, was never at the highest point. But Man Man United seemed to have a game plan. They took the lead very, very early and they kind of held on. And Maybe that can be City's fallibility that if things do go wrong straight away, sometimes Guardiola sides struggle to come back from that. But maybe that's against elite clubs like Man United and not against teams like Fulham. Is there any way of beating this side? Let's put it this way, right? United beat City and United played really, really well, I thought. They, 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 you know, they took the game to City on the break from, you know, in the openings of halves. They sat back and defended really neatly and then they caught City on the counter. With all that said, I thought City were reasonably poor. I thought they had an off day. And if the score had been 4-1 City, I still wouldn't have been surprised. Like, that that's the kind of thing. United got a little bit lucky. They played really well. And City weren't great. And with all that said, I still... I, you could have watched that game. And if, if you... You know, if the scores had gone differently, if that Rodri shot goes in, if a couple of those chances, you know, fall to... Fall where they should and, and City take the opportunities that they have been taking this season, then... They beat Man United, even though United probably played as well as they've played all season and City played as poorly as I've seen them in a little while. Because ultimately, City's average, and I think this is really important this season, and it comes back to everyone, so it's relevant to Fulham. I think what it is, is the the average of how you play this season is, is going to be really important because of the fixture truncations of the fact that there have been serious injuries for a lot of sides, especially those who are playing in European competition and fighting, as Peter says, on loads of fronts. Uh, and, and with all that said, you kind of regress to your mean quite a lot. And City's mean is just a whole lot higher than everybody else's in the Premier League right now. You look at United's average game, right? You know, or, or a game that they played badly in, and you look at that Palace game where they were absolutely diabolical. And and you think, right, okay, the the average of performances, a City bad performance, they still could have beaten the second best side in the league. And and that I think provides a problem because well, it provides a problem for Fulham this weekend, but it also provides hope because I think the Fulham's average performances have been better than a lot of the sides around them for the across the course of the season. You know, especially if you take out the six games but at the start, but even if you include them, I think Fulham's average has been better than those around them. And so, what I think is this this weekend is try and keep it tight. Obviously, try and hit them on the break. It's going to be incredibly difficult, um, and and you have to kind of basically get a little bit of luck, uh, a little bit of fortune, and City on a really off day. And and if that happens, then then Fulham can throw a little bit of caution to the wind. But one, any mistakes get punished. It's a uh, it's a question of you don't play City for. 80 minutes, as I said, you play them for 90 minutes plus every single minute of addition passed on. And if you can keep your focus for all of that, if you can get a little bit of luck, if you can get a little bit of the rub of the green, then yeah, of course it's possible. But I just think it's going to be an incredibly difficult task. It's a real test for the defence on Saturday, isn't it? Of course, we know the statistics and we'll delve into them in more depth um, after the break and and Fulham have been so impressive and only Man City have conceded fewer goals in in, in the last 17 matches, right? And Fulham generally recently, if we haven't kept a clean sheet, we've only conceded one and very, very rarely two goals. This defense has not faced a test like Man City will pose on Saturday. I know we did when we went to the Etihad, but I still think that was a Fulham team in development, a Fulham team that was in progress. Now I think that this defence is not maybe fully formed, but not far off it. And I I said last night, I'm morbidly fascinated to see how our defence copes with City on on Saturday. Is it the real deal or will they find a way past and score three or four like they do against many impressive defences. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one because I wouldn't say even if they did, if they did score three or four against Fulham, you know, I don't think that's necessarily reflective of how good they they are overall. I think 
Um, you know, I think the, the way the team have performed in general to go for that length of time, conceding so few goals, um, you know, is, is, is testament to the strength there, especially for relative to where Fulham are on the table. And, you know, it's, it's quite clear that defensively Fulham are very, very sound now. And that's not just a question of the defence. It's also in midfield and, and how, um, in the, how well Harrison Reed is playing and how well Mario Lamina is playing at the moment. Um, and even those up front, you know, the, the way even Caballero, Harry's players, Josh Madge is doing that too, Adam Ola Lutman. Um, that's, it's, it's very much a, a collective in, in how they play. Uh, but I, I do agree. I do feel like City is the biggest test um, for Fulham uh, this season. Because even, even at the Etihad, you know, I don't think City made a substitution that day. Um, there was all the talk about, you know, the need for rest and, and everything else surrounding it. And, um, and, and, you know, balancing squad risk and, and all of that. So I don't think Fulham faced a, a fully firing City. And, and, you know, that's not to say that they, they will do on, on Saturday night. This is a test now which does feel above anything else. I mean, the Tottenham game was probably the closest, I think. Because um, I think when Chelsea came to, to Craven Cottage, um, they were a little off kilter. Uh, it was before Frank Lampard's sacking. Um, Manchester United was a really solid test as well. I think they, they came and gave a really good account of themselves. Um, and we, could, we saw the quality that they had with the, the winning goal. But it did take that goal to, to sort of make the difference from, from Paul Pogba. Um, but, you know, Tottenham is a, the recent example in my mind. And the, the, the problems they posed in the first half were pretty extensive. Um, they really exploited Fulham's high line. They forced mistakes. There were too many mistakes in that first half. Um, and I know we, we, we talked about VAR afterwards, but in, in that first period in particular, the likes of Son and Harry Kane and Gareth Bale caused so many problems. Um, so in that sense, it'll be really interesting to see how they then cope with the movement the City have up front, the way they're able to keep the ball, the way they will pick teams off under pressure, which, you know, coincidentally is what they did at the Etihad and established that two-goal lead through, you know, a penalty and a mistake. And, and that's that's the game. So... Definitely, definitely a, a, an interesting test, I guess, to see the level uh, that Fulham are playing up. I wouldn't say it's definitive. Okay. All right. We're going to take a quick break, uh, delve into the stats uh, with Peter and George Singer. Uh, and later in the podcast, we've got more City preview uh, as Don Betts has your opposition chat. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy here and I'm joined by Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. Peter Rutzler. Hey, everyone. And Fulhamish's very own stats nerd, George Singer. How you doing? Yeah, not bad, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so you'll know George if you're on Twitter from his account, SW6Stats. It's fairly uh, often retweeted by Fulhamish and it's kind of where George uh, posts all of his statistical uh, analysis and uh, he does it after each game. It's very much uh, an account that you should follow if, if all things football data and, and analysis is something that you enjoy. And of course, um, Peter's latest piece for The Athletic is definitely something you should be reading uh, if you enjoy all things analysis. Uh, he linked up with Tom Warville, who, if I'm not mistaken, is kind of the Athletic's chief statistician. I'm sure that's not his exact title, but as we know, Peter, I like to make up titles uh, for people <laughs> in, in The Athletic. And it's a piece he wrote together, and, and it was a fascinating insight into Fulham's style and how it is adapted from game one or game two or three against Aston Villa, Leeds and, and Arsenal and how it has evolved into the Fulham that we saw against Liverpool, a fluid side that has many different shapes and styles that it can use to, to break down opponents and how a lot has changed from just a year ago in the championship. So what were your kind of most revealing findings that you, you, you discovered by writing this piece with Tom? Um, I think the biggest thing is, is as, as you just said there, Sammy, is, is the different um, approaches Fulham take, um, the different uh, strings to their bow, for want of a better cliche, and not just in terms of uh, the way 
Fulham approach games directly, but the way they adapt within games, um, almost a bit chameleon-like in that they can sort of change their form for whoever they're playing from whatever the, what's happening within games. And that's probably what's underpinned their, their recent form. Um, it sort of came out of uh, some words from Scott Parker um, last week, uh, sort of asked how he felt the team had evolved tactically because obviously the recent form has seen draws become wins. And so just assessing, is it just a case of throwing away the back five, which they haven't fully done, um, but just, and now having that emphasis on a four, but what else was there to it? And and, and Parker talked about not only the, the, the recent results, but how he liked the team stylistically. Um, he wants the team to be aggressive out of possession, in possession, effective in both boxes. Um, and that was sort of a, a vague overview, but it's then reflected by the numbers statistically. And the first sort of graph you're confronted with in the piece is uh, Fulham's non-penalty non expected goals for and against trend over time, which is a 10-game a rolling average uh, rather than uh, specific games where Fulham have got you know, a higher expected goals compared to the expected goals they're conceding. And for those who don't wow. know, expected goals uh, is a metric where each chance uh, is rated by how likely it would be to result in a goal, depending on different factors from the distance from the goal, where the shot's taken, the angle. Uh, and, and that's added up to create a, a number that's the number you'd expect the team to score. So the higher, the higher the expected goals total, the better quality chances you're creating. Um, and what the, what the graph basically shows is that Fulham are now consistently creating better chances uh, than the ones they're conceding. Um, and that sort of mapped their evolution, whereby we've seen Fulham stylistically change from one that's very much dominant in possession. And, you know, <laughs> the team that I think had a mixed reception last year, judging from all accounts, uh, from, from, the way, from the way Fulham were playing, to one that's much more dynamic, much more pragmatic, one that's capable of playing in different, not only positional systems from a four to a five, but whether it be sitting in two blocks of four to protect a lead, whether it's pressing high up the field, whether it's going more direct, um, and then also retaining that possession uh, emphasis, which was such a cornerstone of last season. So that's sort of the, the overview of where the piece goes. And then we delve into the numbers that sort of reflect the way Fulham are, are playing. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to take that on, Pierre, because the the graph after that is obviously the the formations and the way that, that Fulham kind of uh, have set up. And, and it talks quite a lot about that fluid right winger, which is the kind of key element to Parker's system, isn't it? Because if you're... You know, if you're playing in a in a five, then your right winger drops back in and, and fills that gap. And it's so important to have a player there. Obviously, Bobby Reed's filled it, you know, fantastically at parts. But Cavalero's work rate is also incredibly good there. And and he does tend to to sit in when he has played there and, and, and really sort of dig in defensively. And we saw that against Sheffield United away earlier in the season and in a couple of other games since then. And is the point here that with Parker's systems and what he's got going now, he's able, and, and players like Cavaleiro, players like Bobby Reed, players like Olaina in particular, are so versatile that Fulham are able to switch systems mid-game, are, are able to adapt themselves in order to address not only their opponent, but the actual in-game changes that, that basically affect how Fulham would... Set, sit in for the end of the last 10 minutes, for example, or or were able to defend a lead a little bit more resolutely in, in a way that perhaps we haven't been able to see before. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Personnel is, it completely underpins uh, what Fulham are doing at the moment. You mentioned them all there. I mean, Bobby Deckard over is the one we've talked about a lot. The fact that he has sl uh, slotted in at right wing back. It wasn't necessarily a case of him playing as a wing back throughout the game. It was part of that sort of transitional change if Fulham could do it, where he would play high as a right winger and then slot in as a five when under when under pressure. Um, I know it can be difficult to sort of visualize that, but the best best example was probably against Liverpool if you want to do a recent one, where in the first half it was very much a four four two. Bobby Deckard over Reed's positioning was very high on the right hand side. You can see him condensing the space and pressing high, and then after half time you see Fulham. Almost, almost change. You know, they they shed their skin. They're they're, they're a different animal. Uh, they drop a lot deeper. Bobby Dakotovari drops in again on, into that five. And as you say, he's not the only one to have done that. Kenny Tetter's done it. Um, even Caviero's done it. As you said, you know, he was the first one. Sort of the first time we we sort of noticed it. Um, I think it was against. Uh, I think it was against Sheffield United, as you said. Um, and 
having that versatility with your players makes such a difference. It means that Fulham can easily slot between different systems. And that doesn't necessarily mean completely different positions like with, with Bobby Decker Dover Reed. You could be talking about your centre halves, the fact that they're comfortable in both a, a back three and a four. Um, a player like Ola Ayner in this system is invaluable. He's played across the back line. He can play in midfield as we saw at QPR in the FA Cup. Um, yeah. So the fact Fulham are able to do this means they can switch between their systems. And the thing with the formations graphic is it's a funny one because it does change so often and it's hard to say they're definitely playing in, in this way. You can see it sometimes in, in possession and out of possession, but they do change so much. And, and in, whether they go more direct, whether they decide to retain the ball more. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's, there's more to the way they play and that makes them harder to play against as well. George, in terms of what you provide to the fans on, on SW6 stats, there's one of the, the graphs you always push up is is, is pass maps, right? And, and the way that the team sets up and it shows that kind of uh, system changing and we see it, you know, 4-4-2 against Liverpool that kind of changed to a 4-3-3 towards the second half, especially when Loftus-Cheek came on and, and how that's kind of visualised. You've seen this change across the course of the season, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. And I think... Peter's absolutely right. You know, each um, each of those maps tell a different story, right? I think we're seeing the tactical, the tactical flexibility of Scott. We're seeing him tweak things slightly depending on who we're coming up against. And I, I think that's a, a big kind of key to how he likes to build his squad. Um, if I can kind of jump on, obviously there's, there's loads of talking points you could discuss about different games, but one of the, the maybe niche ones, which... I'm not sure has been covered, you know, hugely and it kind of links to Olorena and we, I think we all understand and appreciate the flexibility that he gives us. But one thing that I've, I've definitely been seeing is whilst we've gone from the five at the back to the four at the back, there's definitely some real differences between how our fullbacks play. Um, a lot of the time you'll see, Ina, uh, you know, Ina play one of the pullback roles and either Tete or Anderson play the other one. And kind of Ina's role is to be a lot more, he will tuck in a lot more. He'll be uh, a lot more of your kind of classic reserved fullback than your modern attacking wingback. And what we see is, we've seen it a few times before, Kene Tete will, will get the uh, kind of the shackles released. He'll be able to push up the pitch Ina cuts in and we see almost like a back three of, of Ina Tosin and, and Joachim. Um, and I think that's where we've been able to see kind of Scott play a, a bit of a clever trick there of, yeah, we, we kind of know the five at the back wasn't working because we were losing a midfield player. We were losing some control. But actually what Scott's been able to do is, you know, take the four at the back, which gives us a bit more in midfield. But also when the time is right, he can shift it into that three centre-back role and give us that defensive solidity whilst not, uh, you know, not letting the midfield battle go past us. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, if we had two flying fullbacks, I think we'd be caught on the counter a lot more. Um, mm. But when we have Olorino who can play, like we, we have to give him so much credit, the fact that he's played pretty much every role under the sun, like there's a bit of the Chris Bairds about him. You know, he can play. How, how have you oh, managed wow. to sneak Chris Baird wow. in? Oh, Lord. I know. What a what a shock getting Bairdinho in, in the chat. Um, <laughs> but you know you know what I mean, right? Bairdinho played left back, centre back, right, right back, centre mid. He could play anywhere and he would, um, you know, by just playing a, a simple defensive solid job um, and being able to do that across the back of the pitch, it gives Parker this flexibility, right? Um yeah. And, and yeah, for me, I think being able to tweak things against the opposition, have that defensive solidity of Ina dropping into a more of like a centre-back role, you know, for me, that's one of the core reasons why we're seeing, you know, linking to a, a graphic in the piece, the expected goals conceded, that's going down and down and down and down. That's because of the system that Scott's building. That's because of the tactical flexibility of the players that we're seeing. And, you know, I think that's why we're, you know, building in confidence about being able to stay up. So, yeah, I think there's there's loads to kind of be complimentary about with this current Fulham defence. I feel like the Chris Baird thing is a bit of an in-joke that maybe listeners might not understand. But um, 
George just loves to mention Chris Baird at any opportunity. I don't know what it is, but all the time in WhatsApp groups, um, you've got his a side shirt. Have you of Chris Baird? If I'm not yeah, mistaken, I, George, I, I do. I like. I'm sure. I like. I'm sure I'm not the only one. But I think Fulham fans in general, like, we love an underdog. Like, we love, you know, the the players who are the kind of big fancy players who score all the goals. Like. They've never been the ones I've really been drawn to. It's the underdogs. It's your Bairds. It's your Sultan Gearers. It's your, you know, your guys who maybe started really struggling but built themselves up. Those are the ones I love. And I think Chris Baird's the ultimate underdog. You should have just called your account Chris's Calculus instead of SW6 Stat. <laughs> <laughs> I should have asked you beforehand. Yeah, I've, made, uh, I've missed out there, haven't I? I'll see what I can do. Maybe I'll make a backup one, a little burner. Yeah. Everyone would think your name was Chris, though, which would get annoying after a (laughs) while. Um, Peter, there's obviously lots of stats in this article. And for someone that isn't massively stats-oriented, I guess some of the terminology can get quite intense. But one of them was passes per defensive action. Hmm. Uh, And this is all about how many passes, if I'm not mistaken, that you make in the attacking third um, in comparison to the rest of the pitch. And there was also something called field tilt no, in there. No, you just as... the two there, Sammy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have one, I? Yeah, that, the one you've just described, the definition for PPDA is field tilt. Uh, PPDA okay. is, is passes per defensive action, so the number of passes. I, yeah, we can explain it. Do you want to get Peter to explain it? Yeah, well, no, go for it. I'm I'm an idiot, so please, um, <laughs> please educate me because yeah, I'm a stats heathen. Yeah, so um, yeah, there are some overwhelming um, stats in there, and it, it can seem quite overbearing. But hopefully, it's just broken down a little bit to so that they make a little bit more sense. Um, PPDA, which is passes per defensive action, is exactly that. It's the number of passes the opposition make before your team that you're analysing. Uh, makes a defensive action, whether that's trying to intercept it, whether that's pressing, um, oh, yeah. tackling, that's that kind of thing. So for for Fulham, um, this season their PPDA is 14.2. So it's around 14 passes before Fulham will engage. Um, now the other statistic you mentioned is field tilt, which is the number of, which is basically a better way or, or more revealing way of interpreting possession. So it looks at the number of passes made by a team in the attacking third, and then it compares them to the opposition. And then, for example, if one team has made 80 passes in the opposition final third uh, and the other has made 20, their field field tilt is 80%. So you can see which is the more attacking team, the, the more dominant team. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of numbers in there and it, it can be overwhelming and they're sort of broken down. But I think the, the main takeaway from it is how Fulham sort of revert to the mean with a lot of them. And by that, I mean they're pretty mid-table. So for field tilt, their Premier League ranking is 10th. Um, for PPDA, uh, their ranking is 12th. Now, last season, Fulham's PPDA was, was second to only Leeds United. And that shouldn't really be a surprise to anyone, considering how much of the ball they saw, the, the, the kind of opposition they played. You know, Scott Parker himself discusses how they would always face a team with a low block. Um, whereas this season now, they have to be more fluid. There has to be more ways of, of playing the game. Um, and it's revealing that this applies... So quite a few of their metrics from possession to the number of shots that are taken and conceded, the number of direct attacks um, from the number of uh, passing sequences that start in their own half that end in a a shot or a touch in the opposition box within 15 seconds. Um, Again, that's around mid-table. It's 13th uh, in the Premier League ranking. Um, And so what that kind of spoke to, which is kind of reflected by the eye test when you're watching Fulham, is that they do play in different ways and they do change. Yeah, I'd agree with what Peter's saying. I think one thing just to maybe try and simplify further with PPDA, um, obviously the, it's, a, it's a nice little acronym. Um, really, PPDA is, is a pressure metric. It's how many pressures that you're putting the opposition under. Now, kind of classically, that's a difficult thing to measure because a lot of your standard kind of data collection within football is kind of events happening. And then when you get things like a pressure of, you know, Sammy's got the ball in defence, I charge after him and he, because I have put him under pressure, he's made a mistake. 
that's kind of in in classic uh, data collection terms, that's a very difficult thing to kind of assign that value to me as a defender. So PPDA is kind of like a proxy of the pressure that a, a team is putting other teams under. So, you know, when we talk about PPDA, your your leads United, they are like skyrocketed up the uh, up the charts on that one because we know Bielsa loves to play that pressing style of football. Their players yeah. charge over the ball. This is kind of what we see in those proxy metrics. Um, from a Fulham point of view, like Peter says, we're, we're kind of middle of the road there. We're like, we put teams under a decent amount of pressure. We're pretty good at winning the ball back when we do pressure other teams. Um, but, you know, we're not necessarily in, in either extreme. So, yeah, I'd say for me, it, it shows that, you know, we're, we're okay at pressing, but it's not a key fundamental in the way that Scott likes to play compared to a, a Bielsa or a Pochettino or, or whoever. One thing that I found fascinating from this, Peter, was about um, the performances of, of Ariola this season and, and a stat called, is it XGOT or XGOT? Yeah, you can do either. <laughs> or oh, is it expected Game of Thrones? I yeah, wasn't 100% there he is. sure. There he is. I was waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was so predictable. It's you are really sad. Incredibly predictable. Um, and what it talked about was how, and this is maybe a, a slightly worrying metric from, from the piece, Peter. I know a lot of about Fulham is very, very positive at the moment, but it's basically saying, if I'm not mistaken, that the chances that Fulham do concede, whilst there may not be that frequent, a very, very high quality. And, and this actually maybe backs up something that I'd been thinking, but thought it was maybe dumb to think or that I was just biased because I noticed chances that Fulham concede more than other teams. But every single game, there does seem to be one or two chances that the opposition make that absolutely leave your heart in your mouth. And Ariola somehow manages to save them or somehow the opposition managed to, to mess it up. I, I, I guess a great example was a, a chance that Sheffield United missed that they were through on goal. And I, I can't remember which Sheffield United striker it was, but Ariola had to save it with his legs and and we've seen a lot of those this season. So in one case, I guess, is this a worrying sign or does this just suggest that Ariola is a class goalkeeper? Uh, it probably, it's probably a bit of both, um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, that's one of the things that, that does stand out for why maybe Fulham are where they are in the table. Um, I mean, if you go back to the, the pie chart, one of the statistics is expected goals per shot conceded. Now, Fulham don't concede a lot of shots in games, but, you know, they're, they're, their number for that is 0.12. So that's the, the quality of the chance average for each shot. It's actually really high, and which is why they rank 19. So they are needing Ariola in games. And we have seen that in, in, in most games. There's always been those moments where Ariola has been required to make a brilliant save. Um, and again, that, that's then taken further in terms of what Ariola has offered to the team because he's making some very high quality saves. Now, uh, expected Game of Thrones, as you've just mentioned, um, is, a, is, a, is a slightly different uh, st uh, statistic. It's expected goals on target. So rather than expected goals being based on the location of the shot and, and being before the shot's actually taken, um, this one comes after. And it's basically saying, how good is the shot? So if someone shoots from 35 yards, their expected goals number is going to be really low, like 0.01 or 0.03. But if that shot then ends up in the top corner, like right top bins, um, then their expected goals on target number is going to be a lot higher because it's actually really hard to save. Um, so that number sort of reflects the quality of the shots that Ariola is having to deal with. And when you look at that and compare it to the goals conceded, so Fulham's goals conceded is 29 and their ex expected Game of Thrones is 35. Um, <laughs> their goals prevented number from, from Ariola is six and that's the best of any goalkeeper in, in the league. So that's the difference. The difference is six. So he's been the difference of about six goals. Roughly, there are so many different variables with with these statistics that you can't say them in absolute terms, but you can clearly interpret that Ariola is making a massive difference. And part of that is the quality of the shots he's facing, but also the fact that Fulham are conceding these big opportunities, even if they don't concede many. And then the other side of that as well that comes from the piece is that Fulham have relatively decent number of shots per game, around 12, um, but the quality of those shots isn't necessarily high. Um, they rank 16th for that. So those two com combined, the quality of the chances they're conceding and the quality of the chances they're sort of creating for their, for their opportunities 
um, hasn't been high over the course of the season. And, and then when you go back to the original graph at the start, you can see that actually those numbers are improving in recent weeks. And that's why we've seen perhaps uh, one sort of guide to why results have sort of improved. Just one thing to jump in there, just to give a little um, a little context behind that, uh, those kind of attacking numbers and the quality of the chances that we're having are greater. I think if you look back kind of the first phase of the league where Mitrovic was starting up front and we were very, like we were really cross heavy. And remember the game like early on against Leeds where like it, it felt that Scott had told everyone like, don't attack down the middle, like do everything through the wings and just cross it into Mitrovic. You know, whilst that is one way of generating chances, um, crosses coming in and kind of headed chances, they're classically low probability chances. Like the the chance of you scoring a header from the penalty spot it is pretty much zero. Like it just doesn't happen. You need to have a really, really, really great cross and a really, really, really great connection to score those types of chances. Like Ivan Cavallero against Spurs. E- exactly right. That's um great finish, but you whip a hundred balls in, only one of them are gonna result in a goal. Not if it's like, calf, mate. The horseman was scoring that every time. <laughs> well, uh well. Um yeah, so so I think for me the the quality of chances going up, that's a reflection of us, you know, being more varied in our attacks. You know, we're less reliant on those crosses, we're building up play in different ways. Um and yeah, for me that's that's a reflection of Scott learning, Scott getting better and adding more kind of attacking strings to his bow. And that's why, you know, going back to one of the other graphics in the piece, we see the chances we're making are going up. The chances we're conceding are going down. And that's, you know, those are the underlying reasons why we're slowly rising up the table. You know, it's a great sign going forward. Like, hopefully it's it's a sign that we're going to push up and hopefully avoid relegation. Uh, but yeah, it's it's the underlying changes which we're seeing from Scott, which are driving those metrics going in the right direction. Peter talked there, George, about Ariola, who was obviously one of our signings this summer. I just wanted to talk quickly about the thread that you've done on Twitter, which was basically like a where are they now thread, um, which assessed loads of the players that we looked at or were linked to over the summer and, and kind of seen how their campaigns have gone. And just there was a, a really nice little piece you did there in terms of whether we'd missed out on on gems or we basically dodged bullets. Yeah, no, I thought it was a really interesting one to do. Um, I think like, I'm not going to open the uh, <laughs> the kind of Pandora's box of uh, of what people think about our recruitment, but I think in general, when you look at the players that we could have signed versus the ones we actually have signed, I think broadly we've, we've made the right choices. Um, I'd recommend if you jump onto my account and take a look, I'm not going to go through all of them now, but I think there's some examples of players like Tadebo and uh, and Marlon who for different reasons may be kind of lack of minutes or Marlon is just in a Sassuolo team which is just absolutely mental it seems of both scoring and conceding 100 a game. Um, I think there's lots of lots of points here which suggest that we probably made the right call with the with the players choose uh, we probably made the right call by choosing the players that we did in the end, which is really good to see. I think for me, the only piece that this has maybe suggested is some of the strikers that we were linked with have turned out to kind of have really strong seasons. So Patrick Schick is an example of that. who's had a really great season at Leverkusen. Um, Ollie Watkins, again, linked with with him. He's had a, a fantastic season. Like those, those are expensive players, 25, 30 mil they, they probably went for. So... Look, you, you could argue we've got a, a, a top limit of the money we can spend and probably in hindsight, spending it on on defence and keeping the defence solid was the right thing to do. So in general, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with how things have gone. Uh, yeah, I'd recommend check it out. There's a, a few graphics on there. So uh, check it out and uh, on, on my account, SW6 Stats, if you'd like to 
take a further look. Well, um, George, uh, thank you, of course, for for your extra analysis. And and as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, if you do want to check out uh, Peter's uh, stats piece, uh, there is plenty in there that we didn't even touch uh, during this discussion today. Theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod is how you can subscribe to The Athletic. So um, brilliant. We're going to take a quick break. And then afterwards, uh, Don Betts has your opposition preview. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast. And let's hand over now to Don Betts, uh, who has our opposition preview as usual. Uh, and he spoke to Man City fan Lawrence Berry. And he started off by asking him whether he expected their title charge to go so smoothly since Christmas. Yeah, I think we've always had the capacity to win maybe 12, 13 wins in a row. Uh, we've done that before multiple times, but obviously to get 21 wins. Um, I think on our day, we could have beaten United as well. I don't think it was an outstanding Man United performance and we could be on talking 22, 23 kind of territory as well. So we, we are outstanding. Uh, there's no question about it. Um, I think it all just came very late. I think that's what surprised most people. I think if you start the Premier League and you're, you're top of the Premier League for the first few weeks and then suddenly you see, oh, of course, City are going to win it. But ultimately, Man United had three weeks at the top. Spurs had four weeks at the top. Uh, from my recollection, Leicester City, Liverpool all had moments at the top. And, and we've been the most consistent team and we are the best team in the country, deservedly so because of that. Are you surprised how lack of a challenge you've had from other teams? You know, you've got United losing points to the likes of West Brom, Crystal Palace. You know, Liverpool have lost seven, uh, six home games in a row now at Anfield. You know, Tottenham under Mourinho have only just started again to really start picking up wins, really. Are you surprised how everyone else just didn't seem to react to your guys' run? Uh, it doesn't surprise me because ultimately I know how lucky we are to have the squad that we've got. I think the big one would be Liverpool. Of course, Liverpool have had some injuries. But if you look at some of the starting lineups that have played against, even obviously you guys beat them last weekend. That was an incredible result for you. That The Liverpool one shocks me because ultimately we're talking about supposedly the best team England's ever seen or one of the best teams, you, you know, Liverpool fans will try and will try and convince you that it's the best side ever seen in Premier League history, even though they've got 99 points and not 100. Um, and ultimately, City have got the squad to compete with that. United don't have the manager, in my opinion. Chelsea didn't have the manager at the start of the season. They had the play. I think they have the playing staff to, to get close to us. They didn't have the manager. I think they do now, actually, with Tuchel. Uh, Spurs, I don't think you can get anywhere near City with the, the, the centre-backs they've got, in my opinion. Maybe the rest of the squad's good enough. Uh, and then you think of Leicester and Everton that you didn't really expect to be pushing too far anyway. So, yeah, we're very lucky at City. Of course we are in terms of the squad we've got. But then actually, if you just look at the way we play football, even if you take out the bench that we've got, you know, the bench costs hundreds of millions of pounds, let alone the, the starting eleven. Just the way we play football, I don't think anyone can compete as well. I don't think any other side around us are sort of coached the same ability. And you look at some of the players that have improved, Diaz, Cancelo, Gundogan, they've all improved within a season. Um, and, and that's just down to good coaching. Do you think you're a better side without having like a Jesus up top? And and do you think De Bruyne, for example, is better being in that front three as opposed to dropping into like the a number eight role in a midfield three? Yeah, I'd have to agree with you, mate, in terms of that point. I, I do think De Bruyne now, look, there's been times where under Guardiola, he's actually played quite deep and it's, he's allowed David Silva to go on. But David Silva isn't at the club anymore. I think he does genuinely get in the way of Gundogan's performance. And I think Bernardo Silva offers a lot more in and around the midfield in terms of energy. And that's not to, to discredit De Bruyne because De Bruyne's got the one in a million pass on him. But it's a bit like an NFL where, you know, that quarterback has got to he's got to deliver that incredible ball. He needs time to do it. And De Bruyne, a bit like David Beckham almost, you need you, you need that two seconds longer on the ball to whip it in, a whip a 60-yard cross in or whatever it is from all these crazy angles. Um, and it's, it does slow the game down. We were, we were slow against United. We weren't able to create any chances, meaningful chances. Um, so for me, I, I'd have to say, yeah, I think De Bruyne now, for me, you have to play him down the middle. False nine. He did it against Real Madrid. It was a very famous victory at the Bernabeu, one of the only English victories away at the Bernabeu in the Champions League in in, in history. Um, and we were fantastic that night. Jesus on the left, actually. Um, I know we're playing Fulham, but if you do look at the Champions League, I think you've got to, you've got to look at De Bruyne down the middle and it could be a good opportunity to test that further against against um against you boys. Yeah, and obviously we've spoken about sort of your attacking options. We've moved to the back. Obviously, do you think it is simply the signing of Ruben Diaz which has changed it all? Or do you think him he's brought levels out of players you, you weren't getting levels out of before? Biggs example, John Stones. You know, we weren't we didn't we haven't seen this John Stones before. We know the potential's been there. We've seen it during his time, even when he's in the championship or League One, sorry, under Barnsley when he was at Everton. 
do you think it's it's the signing of Ruben Diaz, which has sort of brought different levels at the likes of him, you know, the likes of Cancelo, uh, Zinchenko, even these players that, you know, we know they're good players, but they weren't necessarily performing to the highest levels in previous seasons. Yeah, I think, look, firstly, you have to say Diaz has come in and been exceptional. And uh, it's hard it's hard to sort of engage as a, as a football fan doing this podcast in terms of how much Diaz influenced Stones. Because ultimately, I have seen Stones being a fantastic defender for City. I've seen him clear a ball off the line that was 0.16 millimetres cl- uh, close to Liverpool scoring an equaliser and they would have won the Premier League that season. He's an unbelievable player. Guardiola said it from the first season he was at the club that he was one of the most talented players he's ever worked with. I've seen it week in, week out for, uh, with John Stones. It's just the injuries. And people, I think it's the English media, classic English media bias, where it's like, oh, John Stones is bottling it. He falls over himself. He's, and they want to build him up to set him, to set him up to fail. I've seen John Stones been superb two years ago. He just he hasn't done it as consistently um, because of injuries. And he, he always picks up a knock. This version of John Stones we're seeing now is a little bit leaner, I'd say. I think he's probably lost a little bit of weight maybe that has a little bit of an impact on his on his joints you know I'm not a doctor obviously but from what I can see is someone who watches City week in week out he looks a little bit more physically rugged he can go into a challenge you're always afraid he was a bit brittle as a centre-back uh John Stones um and this season even if you just look at the injury record he hasn't he's barely been out injured that's the biggest factor because I've actually seen him be class and, and uh, in regards to Zinchenko you know he won the Premier League with, with 90 uh, eight points at left back. He, he was a, he's a Premier League champion left back, so he's always been a good player for us. Um, so it's just about sometimes you can't always arrive at the top level, can you, as a City player? Because we go week in, week out, four competitions, we get deep every single season. These these guys get tired, just like Liverpool are. Um, and so I'm not I'm not I'm not too, I'm not too surprised. Uh, long long story short. So and, and if we talk about sort of Ruben Diaz specifically. What qualities do you think it, he has? Obviously, we know the the ability to be a, a world class defender is there. But what actually, what if you can pinpoint sort of certain characteristics or certain abilities? What do you think he's brought to this Man City team that sort of changed it at the back so so massively and so obvious to let's say an outside fan? Yeah, I think he brings in a uh, a ruthlessness. I think um, if you, you can be guilty if you play for Guardiola, worrying once you've won the ball back, I've got to keep possession, and he's not afraid to lump it. Um, he's not afraid to put put a foot in. He's not afraid to put his head in. It's a John Terry kind of. He's a John Terry kind of level player, in my opinion, in terms of uh, defensive output. Obviously, remains to be seen if he'll be as good as John Terry. But uh, in terms of how John Terry wasn't afraid to put his body on the line, and then ultimately when he did bring the ball out, John Terry, he was superb on the ball as well, completely un- unnoticed in that regard. Um, obviously, you won't enjoy hearing that as a, as a Fulham fan, but uh, he, you know he, he's a world class defender on his day, day, John Terry. And I think Ruben Diaz will turn into that. It's just balance, isn't it? It's just balance. You, you, at the end of the day, if you're you, you look, Ruben Diaz is shouting at people, he's telling people to get in line, and he, he's bossing people at the age of twenty three. He's a he's a captain, but I'm not. You know, I'm not playing. I'm not following this guy into battle if he's rubbish. If he's if he's a bit like Harry Maguire, who's a bit. You know, I think he's. A, not the best defender in the world, and you see Rashford calling them out, calling him a dickhead or whatever. You're not going to call Ruben Diaz a dickhead because he actually the, the proof's in the pudding with how he performs first, and then he's a leader second. Um, so we've got two two characteristics there where he's just a fantastic defender, and then he has leadership qualities that we haven't seen in the club since company. If we look at the reverse fixture, which was back in December, early December, I think it was the first game sort of after that month-long lockdown. Because I remember, I think it was the first day back at the pubs where the substantial meal rule was was being brought in. I think it might have been the 12.30 kickoff or something. Um, but that, that was obviously a 2-0 victory. One was a penalty where, from our perspective, we thought it was a bit dubious. But I think that game sort of, that was when we were sort of getting into a good... A, Better performances weren't necessarily getting the win, but we were seeing an upturn in our performances definitely, and we sort of we saw the the improvement in our defence. Is that? Do you think when it when it when it with Man City in this game, if we're looking at the reverse fixture, like you did in that game, for you guys to feel comfortable in this game and you don't have a another slipper like you did in the derby, is you guys are going to have to be looking at an early goal here because the longer. Fulham sort of shut Manchester City. I know you guys have so much talent and quality, but you know we we I think apart from you guys, we're up there with you guys in regard to uh, best defense in the league in the last sort of 10, 10, 15 games or so. So is it is is an early goal? Do you think something that Pep's going to look at in this game to sort of replicate the sort of comfortable victory you had in a reverse fixture? Um, yeah, I, I don't know if he'll go out and say, look, you need to score in the first ten minutes to sort of validate validate the performance. It could take a lot longer than that. I think 
Fulham have been absolutely class in, re- in recent weeks. I think I'd rather be a Fulham fan than a Newcastle fan uh, or, or even a Brighton fan because of the, the momentum that you guys have got. Um, it's just about keeping the ball. I think against United, we didn't keep the ball well enough. We got play broken up far too often for my liking. I don't think Fulham will set up in the same way. I, I, I don't know if you're going to a back five and even playing sort of a 4-4-2 or 4-5-1 uh, in recent games. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to do that against us. If you do, that's where the spaces will probably come in because two banks of four probably isn't enough for you to see, in all honesty. Um, it's, just about, it's just about keeping the ball and, and having serious moments on goal and not, and not falling into... Um, uh, the things that you can label at City when we aren't at our best, saying stuff like we, we we pass it sideways, we're a bit too slow on it. I want to see first first time touches, uh, shots from outside the box, and just 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 rattle Fulham as soon as possible. Because obviously Fulham, you know, you've got nothing to lose. It's not a game that you're going to be looking at to win. You're going to be looking at the other sides around you to win to, to get out of relegation. Um, so we've got to knock the confidence out of you as soon as possible. The way I've looking at it, this Man City game is probably the only one of the only games for the rest of the season now where we're not. We're, as fans going into it, expecting that we can get a result. I mean, even, you know, away to Chelsea and um, away to United. I mean, United's home record isn't great. Uh, Chelsea team, I know it's, a, I know these, they're looking very good under Thomas Tuchel, but, you know, it's a South West Six Derby. Anything, anything can really happen there. But yeah, this is, the, I think it's the last game where we're going into not, where for most Fulham fans are expecting not to get anything. But who knows? Obviously, we, we did see drop points against. Not a subpar Man United team, but it's not like a, a well beaten Man United team who are on the same level as you guys, as, as the Premier League table shows. But if I, for one last question, I can push you, push you for a score prediction, Boovy. What are you going to go with for the game? Uh, I'd be, I'd have to be realistic and say something like a three now. Uh, I just think we're going to be bang at it. Look, I don't know if that confidence extends to the Champions League move further down the line, but. Uh, I think we've got a very, very strong record against Fulham. Um, I'm hoping for no Kamara kind of comebacks under Roy Hodgson, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, you'd have to say something like a 3-0, maybe a 3-1. Uh, I, I do feel quite confident. Well, thank you very much to Dom and Lawrence there for the opposition preview. As ever, that is a bit of a cut down version. If you want to watch the full thing, uh, head to the Fulhamish YouTube channel uh, and make sure you hit subscribe while you're there. So big game on Saturday, uh, 8pm kickoff. Uh, we've spoken on this podcast about how we're not massive fans uh, of that timing. Well, Peter but... <laughs> no, Peter definitely isn't. Peter doesn't. Time. His bedtime schedule is put to uh, put to put to shreds uh, from from that. Um, Jack, what would you like to see Fulham go with um, as a lineup on on Saturday? Um, interesting choices for Parker to make. Yeah, I think I would probably keep it mostly the same. The one thing I'd maybe add in here is I'd like to see a midfield three of Reed, Lamina, and Angisa. Uh, this is going to be one of those games where you imagine Fulham are going to be up against it in terms of the mad- midfield battle. It's going to be Rodri and, and Gundogan and either one of, of De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva or, or Phil Foden can play there or one of the many myriad of options that Pep has at his disposal. It's going to be a question of trying to shut that down. I, I think that it's going to have to be a, a fullback pairing exactly the same. Aina and Tete again, you think of those wing options especially the form the Riyad Mahrez is in and, and you think okay it's going to have to be the the more defensively sound members of, uh, of this the fullback core that that's tucked in here but yeah I think I would switch potentially Ivan Cavallero for Angisa um which because it means that Bobby Reed can double up down that right hand side if if needs be um and yeah go for a midfield three of Lamina Reed and Angisa well, it'd be interesting if that does happen. That'd be two games uh, not in the starting eleven for for Ruben Loftus Cheek after such a long run in the side. Uh, Singer, would you be thinking uh, along the the same lines for City? Yeah, I, I'd probably give the same answer to answer to Jack there. Um, whilst I think Robinson's a great player and does add more uh, in an attacking sense than Olerena at left back, um, I think for the reasons Jack called out, um, let's keep Ola there, be a, a bit more reserved, tuck in and. Uh, you know, hopefully, um, hopefully, be able to kind of crowd the midfield a little bit more. Um, I absolutely get Jack's point about the midfield three. Um, that would be fascinating to see. Do I think the first time to play around with that is against Man City? Like, not too sure. Like those three haven't played well together. It is a bit of a baptism of fire to to get them to play against the Man City midfield. But I definitely see the thinking behind it. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the other players probably pick themselves. Um, I wouldn't do it, 
But part of me is wondering whether Scott might drop Madger for another midfielder and Cavallero becomes that kind of auxiliary striker role. Um, Madger doesn't quite offer the same defensive cover as some of these other players. Um, and maybe Scott will pick this as a match where you need all 11 players to uh, kind of, you know, have that high work rate and defend hard. Uh, defend hard. Um, you know, it, it, it's maybe a, um, a bit of a toss-up, a bit of a trade-off, whether we want a more classic finisher who maybe doesn't defend as hard as Cavadero. So, yeah, I, I think probably will. I wouldn't be too surprised if we see the, the same uh, lineup as we saw against uh, Liverpool. Uh, and Peter, it's an interesting one in terms of the, the relegation battle this weekend. Uh, Newcastle host Villa on the Friday night. Uh, Brighton travels to Southampton um, on Sunday lunchtime. Believe that game's on BBC One if you want to watch it. Uh, and Burnley head to Everton. Uh, all three sides will see that Fulham are facing Man City this weekend and see it as an opportunity to, to create some daylight that has now been eroded. Um, so I, I guess... Um, it also, though, could be a, a real body blow if, if any of them fail to create that daylight because they'll see this as, as a massive opportunity to try, try and open the gap. Yeah, it's all a bit, bit more tense now down the bottom. And, you know, if, if Fulham can take anything from City, then it really is a, a kick in the teeth for a few of those sides. Um, but, you know, that's sort of the legacy of the, the Liverpool win now. You know, the fact that Fulham are on level on points with Brighton, that really does crank up the pressure for them. Uh, a point for Newcastle. Newcastle, you know, we, all sorts have been going up there in, in terms of dressing room unrest and um, obviously the noise around both Steve Bruce and the ownership. Um, it makes it a difficult place right now. And, you know, Burnley aren't out of the woods yet either. You know, you mentioned they've got to go to Everton. Everton have picked up a decent amount of form at the moment. They look a lot stronger than the team that Fulham defeated a, a couple of weeks back. Uh, so, it's it's interesting. I think obviously we're, all eyes are sort of on the, the following weekend when when Brighton take on Newcastle. I think if it's if Fulham can be in touching distance with one of those, even better, be above one of them, it'll be it'll be fantastic. But um, if they can just keep that that gap, would be would would be a good outcome for for the weekend, just so that it adds that little bit more pressure to that game um, ne- uh, next week. Um, but yeah, I agree with the guys on on their selection as well, and I've, I'm intrigued by the idea of a free with Anguissa coming back in. I mean, he did very well against City. Uh, I can't see necessarily the same sort of setup that Fulham did before at City with that 5-2-3 and Loftus-Cheek with Lookman and, and Caballero. Um, maybe more like 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 against Leicester, um, as, as George was outlining. Cool. All right, well, we'll uh, see what happens on Saturday against City. Uh, fingers crossed that we can get something out of it. But if we can't, then, you know, I don't think it's the end of the world. I think there are far more winnable games. I mean, that's a pretty obvious thing to say uh, for Fulham coming up between now and the end of the season. And there is still plenty of time for Fulham to pick up the required points to stay in the division. So uh, all that's left for me to do is thank my guest today, Jack Collins. Thank you. Thank you, Sammy. Peter Rutzler, thank you. No, thank you. And SW6 Stats, a.k.a. George Singer, thank you. Thanks, mate. All right, we will be back on Sunday looking back at that Man City game. So have a good weekend. Come on, you whites. Whites.